Well, we continue in the little known and little preached on book of Second Peter. And we have learned already that Peter's concern is for his readers to continue to grow in Christ, grow spiritually, get more mature, because they have been established in the truth. They have the gospel, they've been taught well, and he wants them to continue. But to do that, they must recognize and resist the influence of false teachers who attempt to lead them away from the truth and away from the Christian way of life. So chapter 2, which is a long passage we're taking today, and I'll explain how we're going to deal with that in a second. But chapter 2 is a passionate and masterful attack on false teachers. This is a piece of rhetoric. I mean, even as you just hear it read, I mean, it's there's some... Strong language here. But notice that Peter's emphasis is actually not on specific false teachings, even though he will address a specific falsehood in chapter 3. His goal here is to describe false teachers themselves, describe them, to look at their motivations, to look at their strategies, so that Christians everywhere and at any time can spot a false teacher and respond to them properly, regardless of what the actual heresy is. Now, heresies change. I mean, we have several today that are prominent that we're dealing with, and tomorrow there'll be different ones. But there will always be this pressure on the church to stray, to leave the sound doctrine of the apostles. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend two Sundays in this chapter, and I'm sure we could spend many more. Sundays on it. But we'll spend two Sundays. So today we'll spend this morning on the description of false teachers. So we'll look at the text and try to really understand what Peter is saying. But then next week we'll learn how to defend against them. So we'll look at the defense against false teaching next Sunday. Again, from the same text, we'll read it again, but we will look more specifically at application to us. So if you look at verses 1 through 3 carefully, you will find that in them, in these three verses, there's a preview of everything Peter says in the rest of the chapter in much greater detail. So he gives us the three verses. He says, this is what I'm going to talk about. And then he explains it. He gives examples. He makes application as he goes on in the rest of the chapter. But in these first three verses, we see all of the themes that he's going to develop. So what I want to do is I want to look at these four themes, and then start in verses 1 through 3, but then bring in other passages from this chapter to help us understand what Peter is saying. So here are the themes. There's the origin of the false teachers. Secondly, their influence. Thirdly, their folly. And finally, their judgment. Their origin, their influence their folly and their judgment. And I am sorry, I could not alliterate these four. I really worked hard on it, and I just couldn't do it. So, so it is what it is. Let's look at the origin of false teachers. Peter says, don't be surprised. Just as there were false prophets among God's people in Israel, this is, this is how he starts. He says there were false prophets among God's people before and just in the same way, there are false teachers in the church today. So really, nothing surprising. 
If you think that we live in an unusually in an unusual time and we're more susceptible to false teaching, Peter disagrees. He says this has been a consistent reality that whether in the Old Testament or in the New, and we can testify today, there are always false teachers and false teachings. Now consider how much of the New Testament itself actually deals with false teachings. Almost almost every piece of writing in the New Testament is combating something, is addressing some issue, is clarifying some truth that is under attack. So notice also that these false prophets and false teachers arose among God's people, which is exactly what Paul says in Acts 20 when he talks to the Ephesian elders. He says, the wolves will come from among you. There will be people among you, people you know, people in your churches, in your congregations that will teach false things and will lead people astray. The greatest threat to the church is always from within. It's always from within. If we are strong in our church, we can withstand a lot of attacks. But if we are rotten at our core, it doesn't take much to bring us down. False teachers come from within the church, and they are very familiar with the right teaching. Heresy is not a new thing. It's a distortion of the truth that is already believed. Let me give you this example. Let me ask you, when was the closest that America came to a nuclear bomb detonated on its soil? What would you say? What was the time that we came the closest to a nuclear bomb exploding in America? Maybe some of us would say the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe? It got really tense there, and it's a real possibility of that happening. Who would you say is the greatest nuclear threat to the U.S. is? Is it North Korea, or is it Russia? Maybe some other country? Maybe a terrorist? Well, let me tell you a story. In January of 1961, a B-52 crash-landed in North Carolina. The plane was carrying two 12-foot-long Mark 39 hydrogen bomb bombs that are 250 times more powerful than the ones that decimated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That happened in North Carolina in the 60s. During the plane's descent, there was something wrong with the fuel, and the plane was refueling. They kept planes in the air in those times to be able to respond quickly to a nuclear threat. So the plane had malfunctioned, and they decided they were going to land. On the way down, a wing fell off, part of the, part of the tail fell off, and so the, the plane crash-landed. Some people died, some people survived. But during the descent, bomb bays opened, releasing the two bombs on board. The first bomb opened a parachute, which is not a good thing because that means it's getting ready to detonate. Parachute got stuck in a tree with the bomb's nose lodged in the dirt at a farm. The second bomb dove deep into the soil, no parachute, in a tobacco field, and it took a week for a team of specialists to find it, to dig it out, and to disarm it. Now, they discovered when they dug it out that the key switch was turned to arm, and yet, inexplicably, the bomb never went off. They couldn't recover all its parts. 
In fact, even today, there's a secondary uranium core that's buried somewhere deep in the North Carolina soil. Of course, they told the farmer just not to dig too deep. <laughs> but they allowed him to farm. Imagine. I mean, and of course, nobody knew. Secret classified, and from nobody knew. It's just recently been declassified, and people started talking about it. And the person who was 25 years old, who was disabling you know, this bomb in the dirt, finally was able to, to talk about it in the last 10 or 15 years. But imagine how close the country came to a nuclear bomb exploding on its soil. And it was not caused by a foreign nation. It's called by a malfunction of an airplane. And so for us in the church, you know, it's, it's easy to say we have so many enemies. And we do. Of course we do. And many of them are formidable enemies, but the greatest threat lies within. What happens in the church always deserves more of our attention than what happens in the world. Amen. So we must answer here an important question as I'm scaring you with these stories. Here's the question. Is Peter describing true believers, true Christians, real Christians who have gone astray and are now under God's judgment? Because if the threat comes from within, if it's in the, within the church, who are the people that can potentially threaten us? Who are the false teachers? Are they actual real Christians that have now left the faith and, and returned to God's judgment? Who are they? Well, if you look at verse 1, it says that they were even denying the master who bought them. That sounds like they're real Christians. And then in verse 20, we read that they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That sounds like they're real Christians, just like everybody in the church. And in verse 21, we read that they have known the way of righteousness. But at the same time, they are compared to fallen angels and ungodly residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. So which which are they? Are they true believers that have rejected the faith, lost their salvation, lost their justification? Or are they people that in some way are different from the typical person in the church? Now, I think verse 22 gives us the answer, I think. Look at verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, Peter says that the true nature, the true nature of the false teachers eventually prevailed. This is what this proverb means, that whatever nature you have, it will prevail. Meaning that whatever nature they had was evil, sinful, wicked nature, and it never got fixed. And even though for a time it seemed like they were part of our community, and it seemed like they were externally transformed, that they have found the way of righteousness, that they have rejected the defilement of the world. But in the end, we learned that they, never, they, were, they were never transformed from within. So were they Christians? Well, to the extent that anybody who comes to church and identifies as a Christian is a Christian, yes. Just like people in Israel. You know, everybody in Israel was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb when they left Egypt, Right? Were all of them saved? Were all of them true believers? No, we learned that, that they weren't. 
And so in the same way, these people that Peter is talking about, they're part of the church. And as far as anybody can tell, they're part of the community of the redeemed. They claim Christ's blood. They try to live a righteous life until you realize that that old nature that was never fixed, that was never transformed, they were never given a new nature by the Holy Spirit, they were never regenerated, and eventually that stuff kicks in and pulls you back into the world and allows the flesh to rule again over the Spirit. And you're given all sorts of temptations. And there is a warning to us in this. That all of us here, you're here on a Sunday morning, at church, you could be doing anything else, number of things you can be doing this morning, but you are here, and you claim to be part of the community of the redeemed, and you say, and we sing, Jesus paid for us, that we are his people, that he is better, but is it really true? Have you been transformed by the Holy Spirit at the core of who you are, so that you are no longer a dog You are no longer a pig, but you are God's new creation. There is something different about you. There's a challenge here, and and we need to be reflective, and we need to consider that not everybody who claims Christ is a Christian. I remember I had a professor at Moody who God converted, I think, as a teenager and was being baptized, and often as it is, you know, in baptism sometimes, the pastor will ask you, would you like to share your life verse or favorite scripture? <laughs> and he said, you don't want me to share my favorite scripture. <laughs> he said, my favorite scripture is, is, uh, is 2 Peter 2.22, that the dog always returns to its vomit and the sow, having been washed, returns to the mire. He had a very low view of sanctification. But that is not the verse that any Christian should use. He was wrong to claim that as his verse. As much as he believed in the power of sin and justification by Christ's righteousness, which was right, he also believed that somehow he was unchanged, but he was changed. If he was a true believer, he was changed. This verse is not applicable to a Christian because we have a new nature. If you are a true believer, the new nature prevails, not the old one. Let's look at the influence of false teachers. Verse 1 tells us that false teachers secretly bring in destructive heresies. They are destructive heresies. Well, who are they destructive to? Well, they're destructive to their followers, for sure. They exploit others with false words, verse 3. There's an exploiting element. They take advantage. They use other people. Verse 14, they entice unsteady souls meaning that those who haven't gained balance and stability in the Christian life, they can be deceived. You can kind of knock them off their balance. And so they take advantage of people who are immature in their faith, and they don't know their scriptures. So they take advantage of them so they would follow them. And then look at verses 18 and 19. Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They promise freedom. But if those those who follow them actually discover that they are in greater bondage, those who have barely escaped the immorality of the world are now given justification to pursue immorality in the church. I mean, this is how damaging and destructive these teachings are and these teachers are to others. 
I know a leader in, in a local evangelical church who says they have a steady stream of people leaving another big church, a prosperity gospel church, that are coming to their church now in need of healing and recovery because they got so hurt by the promises of prosperity, by the promises that God will pay your bills, that God will heal your cancer, that you just need to believe. People get hurt by those teachings. They're not, they're not innocent teachings. They're hurtful. Now, secondly, they're destructive to the reputation of the Christian church. Verse 2 says that because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. It is not uncommon for someone in the world to look at a church scandal and say, you're all like that. All of you guys are like that, just hypocrites. There's nothing real about Christianity. You just say these things, but look at your leaders. And it's not hard to pull up a story and say, how can that be a pastor or how can that be a Christian leader? I mean, look at their lives. Sometimes all that people from outside see are blots and blemishes on the church. And the lamb without blemish or spot, whose blood paid for the sins of the world, is obscured by our sins. Now, thirdly, they are destructive to themselves. These false teachers are actually destroying themselves in the process. Look at verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Even as they are teaching these things, even as they are living these things they are teaching, destruction is already at work in them. They have become animal-like, just going on instinct without rationality, without spiritual thinking. They have become subhuman. When the Lord redeems somebody, He makes us more human than we've ever been. He actually shows us our true humanity. But when we return to sin, we have become subhuman more like animals than men and women. Now, Peter's point is that false teachers become even worse than where they started. And as we'll see in a few minutes, they put themselves under the judgment of God, which is the greatest destruction. It's ironic that the same people in 2 Peter who deny the return of Christ, and Peter will deal with that in chapter 3, they deny that Christ is coming back to judge. But these same people, nonetheless, will be judged when he returns. Now, the reason Peter is so relentless and even ruthless and harsh in his language as he attacks the false teachers of his day is because there is real danger in heresy. Peter is just being a good shepherd. He's protecting his flock. He's actually trying to care for the sheep just as the Lord told him. Now, of course, in many parts of the church today, People are encouraged to explore different views, and they're not given clear definitions of truth. In fact, heresy is considered kind of cool. It's interesting. But Peter knows better, and I hope most of us know better. False teaching destroys people. It destroys churches, and it destroys false teachers themselves. Listen to Michael Green, the commentary on this passage, in his commentary on this passage. He says, Doubtless, such stringent condemnations as Peter's appear to modern readers as old-fashioned and inappropriate 
because we have largely lost any sense of the diabolical danger of false teaching and have become as dulled to the distinction between truth and falsehood in ideas as we have to the distinctions between right and wrong in behavior. But it is impossible to be alive, as Peter was, to the ethical and intellectual importance of the way of truth, i.e. Jesus himself, without being incensed when the way is flouted, particularly in the church. That's why Peter is so serious about this, because it is dangerous, it is harmful, it is destructive. Now let's look at the folly of false teachers, more specifically at who they were, what they taught, how they lived. And so we find in these three, first three verses, themes of sensuality, rejection of authority or blasphemy, and greed are already introduced. And then they're developed in the rest of the chapter. So what is the destructive folly of false teachers? It can be reduced to their embrace of sin, specifically their, desi their desire for sex, money, and power. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, verse 14. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh, verse 18. They are shameless in their immorality, reveling during daytime. They're not even hiding. Verse 13, they have hearts trained in greed. Greed is not accidental. It's an intentional pursuit to them. Verse 14, like Balaam, the prophet who could not resist, he couldn't resist the money offered to him by Balak. And he tried to do everything he could to go around God's commandments so he could still get paid. And it took a speaking donkey, an irrational animal, to restrain Balaam's madness. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 10. This is the height of pride and arrogance. They talk down to angels. They think they have authority over angels. They exploit others in verse 3. They speak about things they do not understand so they can exercise authority over their followers, verse 12. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, verse 10. Now, when I think about certain things that are becoming more and more common in the church, I'm not talking about the world, I do not expect the world to agree with God. The whole point of the world is it is set against God. But in the church, when we see things like homosexuality being common, normal, acceptable in many churches, when the transgender ideology becomes just normal, it just becomes about justice. When those things permeate the church and Christian leaders are saying, it's okay, it's good, it's noble, it's fair, it's something we should elevate and fight for, when that happens... You see all these things that Peter is talking about play right into it. Sensuality, sure. Right? Greed, absolutely. Pride, yeah. How can we claim that we know better than angels who we are? How can we claim that we know better than God who the self is, how I can define myself, what my body is supposed to do or be? 
So this is incredibly relevant. And he is staying general. He gives us categories. He gives us clear pointers to how, how we can discern. But when you start applying that, you realize you don't have to go far to see examples of that in our own time and in our own churches. I heard a priest once complaining that he was getting really bored in the confessional booth. He said that after a while, there was just nothing new that people were, were bringing to him. He says, it's all the same boring sins. It's just, you know, sex, money, and power. It's just all, all that same stuff. And heresy, in some ways, never knew. It just a, becomes a justification for sin. Heresy is there. It's, it's invented in some way to justify our sexual immorality, to get a theological foundation for how we want to live, or our greed, or our pride. Now, of course, these are the very same idolatrous addictions that Jesus came to free us from. He came to free us from this idolatry, from our dependence on the flesh, for our love of money and possessions, for our desire to be exalted over others. That's why he came, to free us. That's part of our sin. It's part of the old nature. And yet we keep falling back into them. And then we justify them. And then we say, this is the right teaching. This is the good teaching. You should follow me in that. Heresies may be taught in the classroom and from the pulpit, but they're often invented to justify the bank account balances, the applause and obedience of the crowd, and the activities in the bedroom. In the time when many people are looking for leaders who are successful and effective and able to get results, who are in agreement with our ideology, we would do well to focus on character because this is what Peter is talking about. He's saying these false teachers are people who pursue their passions, who are proud and arrogant, and they will talk about things they don't know anything about just to get followers, just to get people to follow them. They will make all sorts of statements to justify their behavior. They lie, they deceive, they destroy. These people are not to be trusted not only because of what they say and the kinds of teachings they come up with, but because of who they are and the kind of people they are. It's important that Peter spends most of this passage not on specific heresies, but on the character of false teachers. So let us not fall for capable, but selfish and self-serving leaders. Listen to Michael Green again. He says, this is the character of the false teachers. They are dominated by lust. Their passions are given free sway with the result that they behave like animals while the mental and spiritual sides of their humanity suffer atrophy. They are headstrong, rebellious against the will of God and reckless of the consequences. They are contemptuous of other people, be this human or celestial. They are self-willed. The central man always is, for in the last analysis, self is all that matters to him. Don't pick leaders like that. Don't trust leaders like that. The folly of false teachers is that there is no substance to their teaching. It's just empty things coming out of their character to get what they want. They promise what they cannot deliver. Peter says there are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm in verse 17. 
It looks like there's something there. It looks like there should be something there. You look at a well and you say, there must be water in that well, but there's no water. You look at a cloud at the horizon, you're saying rain must be coming, but there's no rain. They're empty. It's an illusion, as all false teaching is. It promises something it cannot give you. In May of 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a very popular preacher, we're going 100 years back, okay, a very popular teacher, preacher from New York City, preached a sermon, a very important sermon. The sermon was called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Shall the Fundamentalists Win? It was in the context of a great divide in the church. It was part of the church that said, we don't need to hold on to these archaic biblical teachings like the virgin birth of Christ, the literal return of Christ, the atonement. Those are all things that we can leave behind and still be Christian and still do, still do good things in the world. So those were the modernists of the movement. But the fundamentalists of the movement said, no, we cannot give that up. These are the fundamentals of our faith. We have to trust the authority of Scripture. We have to believe in the cross. We have to believe that the resurrection actually happened. And so they held on to that, and there was a split in the church. And so he preaches this sermon, and the question is, shall the fundamentalists win? His answer is no. He's saying the fundamentalists will not win. And he preaches the sermon when he says nobody in this church believes any of the things that the fundamentalists are saying. One of the more popular churches in the nation. And so as he preached, he repudiated the core beliefs of the faith. Now, he would say of the fundamentalist faith, I would say of the evangelical Bible-believing faith. For example, the belief in the virgin birth, he says, was unnecessary. The inerrancy of Scripture, he says, untenable. The doctrine of the second coming, he said, was absurd. And so he promised in that sermon a new dawn of tolerant, progressive Christianity free from the shackles of historic biblical doctrines. hundred years ago, he proclaimed that. Now we, a hundred years later, can evaluate his prediction. And we can confidently say that the evangelical church is still here. In fact, if you look at the progressive churches versus the fundamentalist churches or those who followed in their wake, the evangelical churches. It's the evangelical church that is growing. It's the evangelical church that is thriving, not the liberal church, not the modernist church. The liberal church which offered intellectual honesty and respectability, that was their promise. You can be a Christian, but you can be smart. You can be respected by your atheist peers. That was the promise. You can do good things. You can be an ethical person without believing all this garbage from the Bible. They promised that, but they could not deliver on that because in the process, they gave up everything that made Christianity meaningful and beneficial. So that today, there's absolutely no reason to go to a liberal church. Because if you go to a liberal church and the pastor gets up and says, let us pray, your first question is, who are we praying to? Right? And when they open the Bible and preach a sermon, if they open the Bible, you would say, why should I listen to you? What's the authority behind your words? And now the liberal church is largely gone. The seminaries have closed. The congregations are declining like a mist. It's gone. Now, finally, let's talk about briefly the judgment of false teachers. In verse 3, we are told that their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. 
All who reject the way of Christ, all who deny the master who bought them, whether from within the church or without, have nothing else to expect but divine judgment. Peter says judgment is certain. But the false teachers of his day and many today say there will be no judgment. We don't need to be afraid. Many people today don't believe there is a hell, don't believe there is any sort of divine accountability. If God exists, surely he will lovingly forgive everyone even if we ourselves have a hard time forgiving anyone. Peter's argument is this. God has already judged sinners many times, so we can trust His promise that final judgment will come. He gives us three examples, and I won't dwell long on these, okay? You can study them if you want and look at the cross-references but he's using them as examples of God's judgment to prove that a greater judgment is coming. First, the first example, he says, the Lord did not spare angels. Now, whether the reference is to Genesis 6 and the sons of God there, which is an obscure Old Testament passage, or to the fall of angels led by Satan, whatever the reference is, the argument, the point is clear. God judged the angels... Surely, he will judge humans who refuse to trust Christ. The second example is that the Lord did not spare the ancient world, but punished it with a flood and preserved Noah and seven others with him. So the whole world was at one point destroyed by the flood, Peter is saying. Only eight people were saved, and only because they trusted the Lord's word. They actually stuck with the right teaching. And they did not give in to the false ideas of the surrounding people. And so they survived by God's grace. But the world was punished. It was judged. He's saying, just as it happened then, it will happen one time in the future. There will be judgment. The third example, the final example here, is that the Lord judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued Lot. There was quite a dramatic event. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged for their sensuality, for their sexual perversion, and for their economic injustice. And when they were judged, only Lot was saved, Lot and, and his, some of his family, but not even all his family got saved. His wife looked back, wanting to be there, rather being there than being with the Lord. The, the old nature kicked in and prevailed in her. Now, these three examples show that final judgment will come. The Lord may delay. He may keep sinners under condemnation for a while, and Peter will deal with that in the next chapter. But eventually and certainly, judgment will come. False teachers will not escape, and no one who is outside of Christ will escape. And so I want to finish on a note of hope and then invite you to come to the table. Verses 4 through 10 is one single sentence. And it builds on if-then argument. So if you just read it, you get the logic of what Peter is trying to do. He's saying, if this is true, then this is also true. If God did that in the past, then he will also do it in the future. If you can look at what he did before, you can trust him to do what he says in the future. That's a clear logic here. However, it does not end the way you expect it. Here's what I think happened. Peter was thinking of examples of God's judgment. 
But as he was thinking about the examples of God's judgment, he kept recalling the examples of God's mercy. God judged the world with a flood, but he preserved Noah and his family. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but he rescued Lot. I mean, you kind of, you kind of, you can almost tell the way the gears are, are moving in, in Peter's head when you read this. He says, I'm going to give you three examples of God's judgment. The angels, then the flood, then Sodom and Gomorrah. But then he starts thinking, but there was also God's mercy. It wasn't just judgment. There was also mercy there. It was also grace there. And so he goes through his four ifs, but then when he gets to then, he doesn't do what you expect him to do. You would expect him to say, if the Lord did not spare the angels, if the Lord did not spare the ancient world, if the Lord did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, then the Lord will not spare you. Then the Lord knows how to judge the unrighteous. But what does he actually say? Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Peter actually breaks with the logical flow of the argument because he gets carried away by thinking about God's mercy. The conclusion is that judgment can be avoided because God is gracious. And his grace is seen even in delaying his judgment until the day of judgment on the unrighteous. I mean, this is an amazing passage that doesn't end the way you want it to end, the way you expect it to end, because God is merciful. And for all his harsh language, for all his, his rejection and attack on the false teachers and the damage that they're doing in the church, Peter still defaults to mercy. And so I'm going to call you to conversion. If you are not a Christian and you're listening to this sermon and half of it I'm sure you don't understand, and I'm sorry for that. I could do better explaining things. But you hear the message of judgment. You hear that we are all accountable to God, that God will not overlook our sin. If you hear that, you also need to hear that there is mercy for you, that there is mercy that you don't need to deny the master who bought you. You can accept the master who bought you. And you can embrace him. And you can experience life with him and his sound teaching, in his life-giving teaching. So today, do not deny the master who bought you, but come to him and embrace him and follow him, the one who paid for your sins. There will be judgment. The question is, where is that judgment going to happen? And there's really two big places. It's either going to happen to you, to the world, as we deserve, or it happened on the cross to Jesus. And so embrace Jesus who took judgment on himself for you. And for those of us who are believers, I'm going to call you to repentance. Have you been messing around with sex, money, and power? Have you been enticed by false teachings? Return to sound teaching in your mind, in your heart, and in your life today. Repent. Reject falsehood. Reject destructive teachings, destructive tendencies in your life. And embrace 
the sound teaching of the gospel. We're going to come to the Lord's table, and any believer is welcome at this table. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, you haven't accepted this master who bought you, don't come to the table, but come and pray with somebody, whether it's Mike and Jean who will be here or someone else in the congregation or another elder or pastor. Come and pray with them and express your faith to them if you found Jesus today. And if you are a believer, use this opportunity to repent, to confess, to renew your faith. Ask for the Lord to be gracious to you and help you and heal you and make use of other people to pray with you as well. So let me pray briefly and we'll come to the table and we'll finish by singing.